Inconvenient. Adjective. Causing trouble, difficulties, or discomfort. Truth. Noun. The quality or state of being true. When something causes us trouble, gives us difficulty, or produces discomfort, we avoid it. But what happens when we can't? What happens when those things come from our relationship with God? What happens when those things that are so inconvenient are also unavoidably true? This summer, we take a look at truths that we'd rather avoid. Truths about human dignity, sexuality, relationships, our work, and our money. This summer, we explore inconvenient truths. As you, uh, as you turn to Matthew 5, let me remind us of some things as we get going. Several weeks ago, we injected into this series this summer that, we're, that we've called Inconvenient Truths. We, we injected into it the notion of Christian, the Christian view of sexuality, which is, to our culture, insanely inconvenient. And we noted that the Bible unmasks our presuppositions about our sexuality. That it tells us that sexuality is a good thing, but it is not an ultimate thing. That it is part of humanity, but that the expression of it is not so essential to our humanity that somehow, if we don't express it, we are less than human. And, it, and we, we said that the, that the Bible boldly says that sexuality is designed, to be, designed by God to be expressed only within the covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. And that last part includes what I think personally, is the most inconvenient aspect of the, notion, the Christian notion of sexuality. And that's that your sexuality isn't for you. Like all aspects of Christianity, God designed us for others. Our sexuality isn't made for us. And so if, if you are here for those, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those on our pad, podcast. Um, all of that deals specifically with our sexuality in regards to others, but the, the Bible also inconveniently pushes in on our, uh, past our outward behaviors to deal with us as we are in ourselves. And this week we look to how the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ presses past our behaviors to speak to our hearts, to speak to the issue of lust and its most common expression in our culture. So if you have your place in Matthew chapter 5, I'd invite you to stand as our habit in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading Matthew 5 verses 27 down to 30. And as we do so, let us be mindful of the fact that this is God's very word to us. It, it lays its claim on us. We don't pick it, okay? This is God's word. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word, surprisingly at times, given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, we're in, we're in desperate need of your grace in a special way this morning. So we pray that you would uh, meet us by your Spirit, that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our ears to hear you and our eyes to see you. Would you speak to us, no matter where we are this morning, whether we uh, have been Christians as long as we can remember or whether we are still trying to 
discover, figure out what this Christianity thing is and who, who this guy Jesus is, what he's about, we pray that you would speak to us, that your gospel would be clear to us. And that what we may have walked into this room thinking was inconvenient, we might leave thinking it's a joy because you are our greatest treasure. May that be so for all of us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Some of you who know me, uh, hopefully, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that I'm not a statistics guy. I don't, um, I'm not a numbers guy. So stats often for me are um, just background noise. However, in cases like this, like what we're talking about today, I think it's important to create an environment where we are listening and remembering that this is not some other person's issue. This is our issue. So that said, let me give you some peer-reviewed statistics. Not anecdotal, but peer-reviewed. Go ahead and throw that first one up there, Jackson. Um, Jason Carroll, in the Journal of Adolescent Research, in 2008, in a study in 2008, reports that in his subject pool of 18 to 26-year-olds, 9 out of 10 young men and 1 of 3 young women report using pornography regularly. In the same study, 67% of men and 49% of women agree that viewing pornography is acceptable. In another study in Jurymetrics, it was reported that American children begin consuming hardcore pornography at the average age of 11. Sebastian Anthony reported for ExtremeTech.com that This one's crazy. That the top visited adult website in the world boasts 4.4 billion page views per month. And that the top five internet pornography sites uh, boast numbers of hits that dwarf everything on the internet except for Google and Facebook. And he states that pornography accounts for 30% of all data transferred over the internet. 30% of all data transferred over the internet is pornography. Every second, every second, of which we have accounted many since we started today, $3,075 and change is spent on pornography. Every second, 28,258 people are viewing pornography, and every second, 372 people are typing adult search terms into a search engine. And according to the Barna Group, 2014, 79% of men ages 18 to 30 and 76% of women in the same age group say they view porn at least once a month. Men and women. And in that same study, 64% of self-identified Christian men and 15% of self-identified Christian women report viewing pornography once a month. I ended with that one simply to remind us, this is not a them issue. This is an us issue. If you needed me to remind you of that. But Jesus actually deals with it. And so we need to hear him. And that's what we're going to do this morning. As we look at this passage, we're going to look at it in three ways. Uh, As always, there's an outline in your bulletin. If you care to follow it. We're going to look at the issue of lust, we're going to look at the expression of lust, and then finally we're going to look at its death, right? The issue, its expression, and its death, okay? Now that we're all good and 
stirred up and uncomfortable. Let's get started, okay? Let's first look at what lust is, shall we? We looked at it verses 27 28 there in Matthew 5. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that this, this Sermon on the Mount is famous for, one of the things that Jesus is famous for in this passage, is he takes the Ten Commandments, he takes God's law that was kind of agreed upon by all the people that was listening to him, and he reveals the, the true intent of those Ten Commandments. Whereas, whereas we're kind of prone to stop at certain things, he drives past that. Let's see how he does this here with this issue. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now stop there. Now, that's the seventh commandment, right, of the top ten. If you're looking at the big ten, that's number seven. And, and it's pretty self-explanatory, right? Adultery. Don't, in other words, don't, don't have sex with someone who isn't your spouse and don't have sex with someone else's spouse. Very easy, right? That makes sense because as we looked at when we first talked about sexuality a month ago, God designed sexuality to be an expression uh, of the covenant bond between a husband and a wife. An expression of it. But look at how Jesus takes this a little bit further. He says this, But I say to you, which would have been outrageous to those that were listening to him, he says, But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What? I, I know, right? Like some of you are thinking like, you see, this is what I always suspected. This, Christianity is so down on sex. This, this is just where they go. And actually, it's, it's not that at all. In fact, it is the fact that Christianity has such a high view of sexuality that, that Jesus says this. Not that we have too low a view. It's that we have such a high view of it. And it also highlights one of the big differences between Christianity and the other religions. Because you see, as, as if you've been here, you've, you've heard me say this over and over, but it's important for us to hear. Every other world system, whether it's a religion or philosophy, is interested in your behaviors. Right? What, do I, what, what I do and how that expresses itself. But Jesus is interested in more than behaviors. He's interested in your heart. He's interested in what's going on in here. But saying that, though, doesn't tell us what this issue is that he's talking about. Here's, here's what it isn't. Lust, because he says lustful intent, right? Lust is not desire. Desire is God-given. Desire is, is, a, is a fine thing. Lust is not desire, nor is lust a general recognition of someone's attractiveness. I need to say that very clearly. It is not a general recognition that someone is attractive, right? God creates beautiful things. He creates beautiful people. It is not lustful to see someone think, that's a beautiful person. Lust is a subtle turn within that recognition in our hearts. It is something more subtle than simply uh, how long the eyes remain on a subject. It is a subtle turn in our hearts. Lust is about objectification. Lust is a drive to consume, to control, and to use another person. And like I said, here's where Christians often get off track. Because like I said, desire is not sinful. And this is really hard to believe, but I need you to try, try and be open to the possibility that this is true, because this is what the Bible will tell us. Sexual desire, believe it or not, is not designed for orgasm. It's designed for intimacy. The problem is that broken people like us have eroticized sexual desire to the extent that we don't know what else to do with it except to move it towards lust. We have, no, we have no clue of what that... What does it even mean if it's not to be directed in this way? 
But the kicker of what Jesus is saying is that lusting after another person, man, woman, whatever, is akin to breaking the seventh commandment. Now, I should say this. He's not perfectly equating the two. Right? He's not perfectly equating the two. Uh, What he is doing instead is he's saying, look, just because you haven't done a physical act doesn't mean that you are blameless. Your heart has already gone there. And God cares about your heart. Now, that's the what. Let's look at the why, shall we? Back at verse 28 in this little phrase, he says, the one who commits adultery, who, who looks with lustful intent on a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. Okay? That's an important phrase, so listen close if you can. For us, for those in the Western, modern Western world, we think of the heart, we think of the seat of our emotions. Right? It's where, we, where our, our, um, our uh, unmoved emotions kind of come from. We, that's, that's what we think of it. But when the Bible uses the word heart, it doesn't mean that so much. It's not the core of your emotions. It's the core of your being, the center of who you are. In the worldview of the Bible, the heart is where everything springs. It is, it is, the heart is distinct from our intellectual lives. It's distinct from our willful lives, like the, the, the will that acts. It's distinct from our emotional lives. But it is, in fact, the spring from which all of those things come. In a sense, it is our core commitments. It is the center of who we are. And Jesus is saying to them, long before the thought of adultery, long before the decision to commit adultery, even the, the longing and the feeling that you must do this comes from your heart, lust. Jesus says something similar to this later in chapter 15 in Matthew. He says, he says that it's from the heart that all kinds of things spring. All kinds of things like murder and slander and adultery and theft. He's saying that it's, it's actually from your heart, from the core of who you are that all those things come from. And when your heart is bad, it brings forth these things. And he says this to confront a lie. The lie is this. That it is what we do that messes us up. That's the lie. That's what we do that messes us up. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's the fact that you are already messed up. The fact that you are already broken. That is why you do what you do. Did you hear that? Because that is another uh, foundational difference between Christianity and other world religions. This is the diagnosis that Christianity gives us. The Bible tells us that you and I are messed up. But not just that what we do is messed up. Not just that we do messed up things. Many of us know that we're broken. We know it. We don't want to admit it to others. We're hoping that people won't see it. that That we can kind of keep it hidden or, or we can make things better. And as long as we're trying really hard, it'll give us a pass. But we can't. The Bible tells us that we do messed up things, that we sin, to use biblical language, because we are sinners. We do messed up things because we're messed up. And in this case, in the case that Jesus is speaking of right now, It looks like this. You and I were designed for God, to be in relationship with Him. Okay? He is to be our greatest satisfaction. But there in the beginning, when we sinned as a people and we turned away from Him, we broke relationship with Him. And so now we want to be independent of Him. And that has left us 
without the satisfaction that we were designed for. Not just with a bad status, but with an empty state of satisfaction. And now we are driven to fill that with something, to fill it with anything but God. Jason alluded to it in, in, in one, of, one of the things he was leading us through in worship, that, that um, the church father, St. Augustine, uh, said once at the beginning of his confessions, he says, Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, right? Some of you know this phrase. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We were made to find our rest in God, but now since we are alienated from him, we've broken relationship with him, we are restless. And we are driven to fill that restlessness with something, anything but God. And that is the heart of lust. Lust isn't desire, it's inordinate desire. It's desire taken to an extreme. It's it's a selfish drive to, to state your own dissatisfaction with anything but God. We do it. We all do it. Because we are fundamentally broken. We are sinners separated from God. That's why it is. Now let's look at where it leads. That brings us to the last three verses. Now, look, if you were listening when when I was reading this a few minutes ago, and you've never heard this passage, Jesus just came out to you as, like, crazy. Like, if your eye caused you to stumble, rip it out. Like, uh, like, I thought he was wearing Birkenstocks and a robe and talking about love all the time. He's talking about ripping your eyes out and cutting your hands off. That's bizarre, right? It is, but that extreme language, which we're going to get to in a second, can easily cover up what Jesus is ultimately saying. He says your lust ultimately will only lead you to hell. That's not a popular phrase, right? It's not a popular word. But here's, here's the deal on that. That word that, we, that he uses there that we translate hell is the word Gehenna. Gehenna is a place that during the first century, when Jesus was talking... And in first century Israel, it came to be associated with, used as a metaphor for eternal judgment. And here's why. South of the city of Jerusalem, just south, a little south-southwest of Jerusalem, was a valley. It was the Valley of Hinnom. Gehenna. Okay? The Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was known for a couple things. Uh, two, at least, of the ancient kings of Israel sacrificed their children in that valley by fire. They burned them alive to the god Moloch. So it was a place of, uh, obviously, bad reputation up to that point. But during Jesus' day, it had become basically the trash heap. It was the dump. That was the dump. That was where everyone threw their stuff. And it was a place that, because of what was there and all that was in it and the heat of the day, it was, it was always on fire. It was just burning all the time. And that's why Jesus would come to talk about it as a place where the worm never dies, where the fire is never quenched. Which isn't just a literal statement about, like, obviously Jesus knew worms actually do die, right? I mean, that's not, that's not a modern invention. We, actually, we've studied worms now, Jesus. You were wrong about that. It's a metaphor, okay? Here's what he means by that. The Valley of Hinnom was never satisfied. The fire would, never had enough to consume. The worm never had enough to eat. Do you see the connection there? See, we are sinners by nature, separated from God by nature, feverishly searching for something to satisfy us by our very nature. And that sin is a betrayal of God, so it brings guilt. And that guilt is the judgment of hell. But, it, but hell is not just, is not just a, a punishment. 
It's also giving us what we want by nature. An existence separated from God. But in giving us what we want, God is judging us because it is a place where because we were made for Him, we will never be satisfied. Because we will forever bear the weight of our betrayal of God, separated from Him eternally. Now, that's the issue of lust. Let's look at its expression. The issue of lust is a desire to consume another, to use them, in in this case specifically sexually, to satisfy ourselves. Now, we're going to look at its expression. Um, In our culture, as you've already guessed it, the most prevalent expression of lust is through pornography, right? I've given you stats on that. Hopefully that at least woke you up, got your attention. But the reality is, is those statistics only scratch the surface, because you see the definition of what it is that, what, what exactly is pornography, right? That's a laughable statement because of how notoriously difficult we, we seem to want to make that. We all know the remarks of Justice Potter Stewart in 1964, right? Supreme Court Justice, who said that he couldn't intelligibly define for you what pornography is, but he'd know it when he saw it. Like, we, we understand that. Many of the statistics that I noted would probably go up if we included Uh, media that drew out lust for another in us, wouldn't it? Because that doesn't just include things that I think all of us as a society would agree, oh, well, that's, yes, it would go up. I mean, think with me. Many of us would define offhand, we would simply define pornography as like pictures, videos, or stories that depict sexual acts or simply sexually explicit nudity. We think of things that aren't available in the mainstream media. Or are they? There is plenty of sex depicted on TV or movies or pictures and stories and celebrity mags and novels that do basically the same thing. I'm going to warn you, I'm about to step on some toes. I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm just going to warn you. Just because the characters are well-developed or the story is rich doesn't mean that Orange is the New Black or Game of Thrones or Pure Blood or Fifty Shades is not pornography. Nothing in that definition that says, well, they can't have well-defined characters. Right? Just because it doesn't show certain body parts doesn't mean that some of the scenes in something simply on uh, you know, uh, uh, 8 o'clock television like uh, Scandal isn't pornographic. These things, all of these, are designed to draw out our lusts and to hook us by them so that we keep coming back for more. They're designed for it. Now, some of you are probably thinking right now, Rick, you are such a prude. Or you're simply arguing with me in your head, right? You're trying to justify, no, 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 no. What I, what I watch or what I, or what I read or, or those sites that I go to, they're not that bad. I know of others that are way worse, granted. Okay? But don't check out on me because I want to get to the reality because this reality is important. Remember what I said a few weeks ago when we talked about the Christian view of sexuality. Sex is designed to be about Intimacy with another person. It's about relationships. Specifically, it's, a, it's about the whole life sharing that takes place in marriage, right? And so to, to share that part of you with another person without sharing your life is saying, I want your body, but not who you are. I'm willing to use you, but I don't want to be given to you. 
willing to commit to you the next five minutes, but not the next 50 years. It's selfish. And pornography, since sex is really about intimacy, what pornography does is it creates a false intimacy. Here's what I mean. Guys, you want, don't try and deny it because I know it's true, because I'm a guy. You want to feel strong, powerful, desirable. You want a woman to invite you to her to see you and want you. And pornography gives you this. Or at least it's illusion. Right? Pornography is an illusion designed to make you believe that, that a woman wants you. To make you believe that you are adequate. She's never angry with you. You never let her down. You completely control when you will see her, how much, of, how much you will see her, and when you can move on to the next one. And she meets your needs and never asks anything of you. It may sound great, but it's a total lie. And that is why you can't ever get enough. That is why five minutes turns into 50 minutes turns into five hours. Ladies, you're not off the hook, though. Remember what we said? 76%. 76%. That's a big percentage, right? Ladies, you want to feel beautiful. You want to feel desired. You want to feel pursued. You want a man who will see you in a crowd, chase you, and care only for your needs. He will never be selfish, never let you down, never think you don't look good in that dress, never forget that special occasion. And every moment with him, you will feel that excitement and that danger that, that you always felt that first time you met that other guy, right? It sounds awesome, but it is a lie. What pornography is, listen to me, I'm, I need us to get this. What pornography is, is us selfishly using another person for our own ends. And some of you are thinking, Rick, come on, man, it's just pictures. I know, exactly. It's just pictures. It is separating someone's body from their person, from their soul. Do you know what the Bible says the separation between body and soul is? Death. I don't want them. I want their body. You know what you're saying? I want you dead so I can use you. Let's not pretty this up, friends. That's what this issue is about. Using another person, even if it is their image, for your own lusts is sin. Plain and simple. Relationship, intimacy, without risk, is neither possible nor is it good for us. The demand for such, the demand, I must have relationship, I must have intimacy with no risk. The demand for that is part of our brokenness that says, I deserve, I must have, I should have. Friends, our sexuality was not made for us because we weren't made for us. Sexual self-gratification, whether using pornography or not, is quite simply outside of God's plan for sexuality. One last thing on this, and this to married couples. Man. Guys, if y'all are using this in your marriage, whether together or just to heat things up, please stop. 
God brought you two together to delight in each other. Just in each other. Please don't bring someone else into that bedroom. Okay? Now that's the issue and its expression. Now can we deal with the death of it? Because some of you may be tempted to think right now, Rick, you don't understand. <laughs> this is the only thing that helps me. You know how hard my life is? This is, this is the, the relief I get. Trust me, I understand far better than you think. Because my history with pornography started way before the internet and way before the average age that I laid out for you earlier. I get it. And I've done a lot of personal work with friends and with others to, to understand not only what it is, but why I do it. And I know a lot of you think that it helps you, but it doesn't. The only thing that can help you is the gospel. Here's what I mean. Remember I said lust is ultimately an inordinate desire. Desire, even sexual desire, is meant to draw us into relationship, not, not necessarily into eroticism. But lust takes that desire and it lifts it to the level of needing to consume because of that hunger that's caused by our alienation from God. And we heard, even from this text, that this springs not from behavior, but from our hearts. It isn't simply what we do, but it's, but it's who we are. All of us. So how does that change? You see, that's where Jesus comes in. If our problem was simply behavior, if we could go, uh, as some, frankly, some books try and tell us to, if you look for this long, you're okay. And if the second later, it turns into this. Like, if that were all it is, I don't need Jesus. I need a stopwatch. Who needs Jesus? I can get rid of my lust with a stopwatch. Uh, okay, I'm good. You know, like, no. It's not about our behavior. It's about our hearts. And frankly, you and I can't change our hearts. We can't change who we are, but Jesus can. Jesus can. Jesus lived a life that wasn't about consuming for himself, but giving himself for others. He lived totally dependent on God, loving God with all of his heart, loving his neighbor as himself, as we were designed to. And he did so perfectly because he was God incarnate. And then he died. He, he went to the cross and bore the weight of every lustful thought that you and I have ever had. He died to bear the weight of that sin before God. And he did this to reconcile us to the God we were made for, to reconcile us to the God we hunger for. We come to him by faith. Through the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit, we place our trust in Him to give us a right standing before God and to be the satisfaction that we long for. And when we do that, we're reconciled to God. So do you see how the gospel undercuts this? Lust is born out of the need to get and the thought that I deserve to get. And the gospel destroys both. It tells us first and foremost that the only thing we truly deserve because of our brokenness, because of our betrayal of God is hell. We are not entitled beings. We are broken. We are needy. Look, I get it. Some of us look really clean on the outside. We clean up nice. We know how to hide it from other people. But our goodness done independently of God is just as heinous to Him as anything that the most broken among us can boast in. But the Gospel also tells us that we don't need to get. We don't need to go get for ourselves. It tells us that even though we were desperately broken, that God sought us out, that He loved us, 
that he loved us first and he reconciled us to himself. Listen to me. He knows you. He knows the you that you don't want anyone else to see. The one that, that, that probably stays up too late looking at things you shouldn't. And you're hoping no one will ever know this because what will they think of me if they do? I'm telling you, God knows it. Every second of it. And he knows it deeper than you do. Because until you walked in here today, you thought, oh, that's just something I do. And he just said, no, 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 no. That's who you are. But most of us are terrified that if someone knew us that deeply, they would never love us. But what I'm telling you is God knows you completely and he's loved you thoroughly. He sees you and by his grace, he loves you. We don't have to get for ourselves because God provided for us in Jesus. And so the gospel, when we truly believe it, it actually cuts the root out of lust. It cuts the root out of why it is that we do what we're doing. But that, doesn't, that, that isn't to say that change is easy, right? Christian change isn't simply behavioral change, but it, can't, it cannot be less than that. So let me lay out a path for that. Because some of us here have been Christians a long time, right? And we struggle, and some of us we struggle invisibly with this very issue. Lust is internal, it is powerful, and it creates boatloads of shame. Listen, I say this a bunch, but hear it again this morning. Because this is, this is about as true as I can ever say it. There's nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with me. Jesus is risen. And if you are a Christian, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that took death and worked it backwards, lives in you. If God can raise the dead, he can cut out your lusts. Change is possible, but it isn't necessarily easy. So let me give you a path to see this change in you. Uh, 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 six, briefly, I know you're like, six? Rick? Okay, six, six points on this, okay? Really briefly. Some of you all like six steps to X, Y, or Z. Here they are, okay? First, acknowledge it. We need to understand biblically there is no place for this in the life of anyone who claims Jesus as Savior and Lord. No place. No playing with it, no hedging it. There's no place for it. Jesus says lust is breaking the seventh commandment. I'm like, well, the Bible doesn't speak to porn. He just did. It's breaking the seventh commandment. Let's stop making excuses and call it what it is. So first, acknowledge it. Second, you can name it. You have to name it. Here's what I mean. Tell someone you trust and can walk with you through it. Tell someone. Today, I deal with this. Listen to me. I know you're, you are making excuses in your heads right now. I know it. I know it. I love you and I know it. You can't do this alone. I have multiple guys in my life who know this has been an issue in my life and, and ask me about it, talk to me about it. You need to tell if you don't know who, frankly, come tell me. Tell an elder, tell your small group leader, but just tell somebody. You've got to get this out of the dark. So you've, got to, you've got to acknowledge it, you've got to name it. Third, you've got to cut it. Here's what I mean. You've got to make potentially drastic changes. 
to, you've got to make those changes to restrict your access to the stuff. Jesus used drastic images like plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand because it actually is that important. Jesus, it's not like he couldn't think of something else to say. Like, well, I don't know. What, what should I say? Oh, you know, it's kind of like plucking out your eye. Like, this is that important. Friends, if you need to give up your smartphone or your internet access, do it. It is worth it. And if you are married, listen to me. Your marriage is worth far more than your iPhone. Dump it. Dump it. One way to combine both two and three, the name it and the cut it, is to get internet reporting software on your computer, on all of your devices that can access the internet. Something like Covenant Eyes. It's like less than $10 a month, and it'll tell people everywhere you've been. You're like, I know it's awesome. It's great. I have it on everything of mine that can look at the internet. Fourth, you need to explore it. Here's what I mean. Those are all very behavioral things, right? This is sin. Tell someone what you're doing. Cut off your access to it. But you've got to explore it. You've got to explore why it is that you go to porn. If you think that it is just for pleasure, you are deluding yourself. It isn't. As long as you believe that pornography has nothing to do with people or relationships, you will never be free of it. You will need help exploring this. You may need help from a professional counselor who knows the questions to ask, but you need to know why you run there so that you know how to specifically apply the gospel to it. Okay? For me, it often had to do with feelings of abandonment or fear of being inadequate for people due to my story. Look, the gospel can touch those areas, but not if you don't know they exist. You've got to explore it. Fifth, uh, and I think I made up this word, but that's okay. Rehabituate it. This is what I mean. Some of you have been struggling with pornography for a long time. It's a habitual action, which means that there are literally, there are grooves in your brain that go, when this happens, you go, and you fall into that groove. And so part of sanctification, part of being made more like Jesus, will mean making new habits, new habitual patterns, new patterns or behaviors. And so when you feel X, whatever that is, instead of running to porn, you call a friend, or you ask them to pray, or you move in relationship towards someone else. You you open your heart. Is that hard? Yeah. But it's necessary. It's necessary to change. Finally, bear it. Listen, some of us, most of us would be my guests. We do it in different ways, but most of us have a demand in our hearts that says, I must have intimacy without any risks. I refuse to be hurt. I'm afraid of being hurt. Look, I know you are. But listen, all relationships take risk. All Relationships bring the potential for harm because we are all sinners. We harm each other without even intending to. I may have harmed you in the last 30 minutes. Trust me, that was not my intention. But if I haven't let you down yet, I will. Demanding that this be different, demanding that it will be different for me, is incompatible with the Christian faith. Because it demands the world made new right now. 
I will have a world without sin now, God, and you will do it on my timetable, and I will get it however I can. Guys, there will be time in which you are not enough. And those are beautiful moments to return to God and to share it with others and to find grace that never asks you to be. And ladies, there will be times in which your specialness is not recognized or it is scorned. And I'm sorry for those. But those are moments to return to God and to see that He has moved towards you fully in Jesus. He has seen you and moved towards you. And then simply to rest in Him. We hunger. And out of that hunger, we lust. But Jesus came to reconcile us to God so that this hunger could be filled. And so having been filled, we could then be freed to live as we were meant to, loving God and giving ourselves for others. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for my friends who have been struggling in silence invisibly here right now. And I pray that you would move in them right now to put a face or a name in their heads even right now that they will go to, and you will not give them rest until they have gone to that person to, to, to say, help me. I'm struggling and I need help right now. Lord, I pray that you would work through the gospel to undercut the root of this thing that drives all of us in one way or another, whether it's lusting for people, lusting for power, lusting for money, lusting for security. God, feed our hungers from your very self by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the perfect work of Jesus, we ask boldly that you would do this even right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.